Hello. What is up, Bam Fam? This is one of your hosts, Robbie, and I just want to say welcome to the Balance and Moderation Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping health conscious individuals elevate their mind, body, and spirit through a compassionate and realistic approach. Today's conversation is led by the other host of Balance and Moderation, Miss Sheridan. And it is all about neuroplasticity. We get into the science, what helps neuroplasticity, and what is negative towards it. Please, if you like what we're doing, don't forget to rate, review, like, share, and get the word out to everybody. Big love is our motto and our message is for everyone. Well, everyone over 18, as some content may be inappropriate for minors. That being said, we hope you enjoyed the episode, Neuroplasticity. I don't have to put this part of the conversation on the episode, but I, I thought it was funny to, to hit record. You know, oh, just, a tip, just a typical BAM conversation. Oh, we talk about everything. We do. We talk about everything. And... That's that's why we're here. We're here to talk about everything, but the main thing that we're here to talk about is our health, our wellness, our happiness, our emotional contentment, our existential peace. Yes. Very nice turnaround, Robbie. That was a really, <laughs> really solid reeling it back into uh, the show, but... Um... Yeah, we'll just kind of jump into it. We're talking about neuroplasticity today, yes. which, you know, I think a lot of our shows have centered around physical health and spiritual health and a little bit more philosophical conversations. And today we really want to talk about mental health both the physiology of the brain, how to actually promote more brain health through this concept we call neuroplasticity, which is somewhat of a new phenomena that we're like coming into in our generation. Um, I think historically it was believed that the brain stopped growing after childhood. And while your brain doesn't grow to the same extent as it did when you were brand spanking new and gaining all of these neural connections and things like that, we're realizing that the brain continues to grow and change throughout the lifespan. So, and the more that you can stimulate neurogenesis, which is the creation of new synapses in the brain, the strengthening of synapses in the brain, um, as well as, you know, allowing yourself and your brain to grow and change throughout your lifespan, that is just going to benefit your overall optimal health and also prevent a lot of neurodegenerative and physical degenerative diseases. So that's kind of what we wanted to chat about with you guys today. Love it. Neuroplasticity is something that within the last few years, I have become more aware of, and I, 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 think, I think it's important. I think our lifestyle leads to the opposite of neuroplasticity a lot of times. The, American, the standard American lifestyle? Yeah, 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 for sure. High sugar diet, very sedentary, and just having the, the notion that your brain won't grow. Mm -hmm. If you believe it, it'll happen. If you believe that your brain stops growing, it's probably, I, I have a feeling that would affect neurogenesis. Yeah, definitely. Well, and it's like your mindset really does affect, mm, words are hard to say today. Uh, hard words. Hard words. Your mindset really does play a role into how your brain grows and changes, which that kind of makes sense. But I think we don't give ourselves enough credit for how much our thoughts really do affect our brain. So for example, neuroplasticity can easily be disrupted by severe stress and adversity. And 
it's actually, we see physiologically depression and traumatic experience do cause a loss of synapses in the brain. So that is quite literally the opposite of neurogenesis and neuroplasticity. So it's not to say that if you struggle with depression or negative thoughts or you've experienced some trauma in your lifetime that you are just doomed to have an unhealthy brain for the rest of your life. That is not the case at all, actually. Yeah, talk to Jim Quick about that. Yeah, absolutely. Jim Quick is a great resource for anybody who is wanting to transform their lives and up level and really change your brain. I love his work and I'm, I've been reading Limitless and he's, he's fantastic. But you know, if you're stuck in a rut of negative thought patterns, that is going to disrupt your brain's ability to create new synapses in the brain. And basically, I'll kind of take a step back for, you know, baby bio 101, a synapse is the juncture between two different neurons. So everybody knows that neurons are like the brain cells in the body. And so a synapse is creating a connection uh, between two different neurons. And so neurogenesis is allowing you to create those connections, but also creating new brain cells, new neurons um, in real time. So Okay. And when you say synapse, synapsis, is it is it an actual tissue connection or is it just an electromagnetic Kind of. Um, the brain actually generates new tendrils of connection to other nerve cells, and those are what synapses are. New tendrils. Yes. And so tendrils it's like. Are, um, it's, it's like it's kind of like a finger-like projection. So um, we can even put a diagram of what it looks like in the show notes. That'd be cool. Yeah, because it's basically our neurons actually kind of look like trees or like people where there is the head, the axon that um, absorbs all of these signals. I think that's the way it goes. It's been a minute. Um, but then it has like a long body and then it has roots or legs. And so it goes from head to tail, head to tail. And that's what creates these neuronal um, synapses. So that's great. Yeah. So the whole goal of neurogenesis is to create new synapses and then also strengthen good ones or bad ones? Um, so I will clarify this. Neuroplasticity is the brain's ability to generate new tendrils of connection. So neuroplasticity has everything to do with connection. Neurogenesis has everything to do with the creation of new brain cells. So they are, you know associated with each other. They both happen at the same time, but they are slightly different from one another. So neurogenesis and neuroplasticity essentially happen at the same time. All of the same activities that promote neuroplasticity also promote neurogenesis, if that makes sense. Okay. So they're different, but work in the same... Usually they're working together. Yes. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like it's kind of like you can't have one without the other if that makes sense. There's just different words for it. Okay. Um, so yeah, so stimulating your brain through positive experiences, challenging yourself, having new experiences, like, you know, learning new skills or um, different things like that that's going to stimulate the creation of new brain cells throughout your lifetime. And not only is that going to allow you to maintain or even improve your optimal brain health, but it also decreases your risk of dementia and neurodegenerative disorders. And, you know, we are starting to see how prevalent neurodegenerative diseases have become in our culture. I'm currently in the middle of a functional nutrition course right now, and I just finished up the brain health unit with Dr. Mark Hyman, which even for people who know nothing about functional medicine have probably heard his name at this point. He's a really critical. At least from us. He yeah, from us. Like, he's, yeah, he's yeah. like a rock star in our world, but you know, he's a very critically acclaimed, I think 12 times uh, New York Times bestseller, very, very well recognized, world-renowned uh, functional medicine doctor. Uh, he says that, you know, between 30 to 50% of our current senior population will develop 
dementia. Say that again, 30 what? 30 to 50% of our current senior population will develop dementia or another neurodegenerative disease like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's um, within the next, you know, couple of decades, which is horrifying that it's gotten to this point. Um, But it's also, we're trying to learn, okay, what can we do to fix it? And people on the allopathic spectrum will probably go to, oh, well, let's create a drug that helps, you know, fight the symptoms or prevent Alzheimer's, dementia, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, if you're in the me and Robbie camp, the more holistic lifestyle camp, we're thinking, okay, what can we actually do to heal not only our minds, but also our bodies and actually enjoy our life and not be dependent on a pharmaceutical medication for the rest of our life? That probably sounds like the better idea yeah, in our pretty, in our humble cool. opinion. Yeah, we, we, we vibe more with that train. Now, I don't want to get a, too off topic. I'm sure it plays into neuroplasticity, neurogenesis. I know Alzheimer's, dementia, in certain circles in the holistic world, and especially people that are very aware of their sugar intake, dementia and Alzheimer's would be considered diabetes type 3. Yes. They- actually, Dr. Hyman says that in Exactly. So if this is any indication that we need to stop eating as much sugar or refined flours as we have been, this is it. Because insulin resistance is directly related to dementia. Like there's no question about it anymore, which is insane that it's actually being called type 3 diabetes now. Definitely. And I I think that just goes to show, and I'm sure you might touch on this Sugar, high sugar, having those insulin dumps are going to cause what we refer to as brain fog, which I'm not as privy to this information as you are, but I would assume the brain fog has something to do with the shutting down of neuroplasticity, the shutting down of neurogenesis, kind of stopping your brain from functioning correctly. So I actually don't know the exact mechanism of brain fog or how it physiologically affects the brain. I have experienced it myself and it's something that I do experience on, you know, a not as necessarily everyday basis, but pretty general, like little low level of brain fog. And that's something that I'm working on right now, trying to fix up my diet, also trying to clear up some hormonal issues that um, I believe I've been experiencing. So hormones actually definitely play a huge role in your brain health, which a lot of people aren't familiar with. But sugar is um, horrible for your brain. It is worse than, you know, most drugs are for your brain, actually. Um, And high consumption of sugar is correlated to depression. It's obviously correlated to diabetes because it causes insulin resistance. And so when you are depleting these nutrients from your brain and just feeding it sugar, it actually starts to get smaller. So it directly inhibits neurogenesis and neuroplasticity in the brain, which as a result will cause things like Alzheimer's and dementia. And alcohol does the same thing too. But sugar is just so direct in the way that it inhibits the positive processes in the brain. Aren't the pathways of sugar similar to alcohol, at least on how it affects your liver? As I know, you can get fatty liver syndrome or disease from either being A, an alcoholic, or B, being basically a sugarholic. Eating too much sugar, you can get get fatty liver disease. Yeah. And especially if it's primarily fructose, like Mm -hmm. high fructose corn syrup, which is found in a lot of processed refined foods, or, you know, we don't really see this all that often because most people do not exclusively just eat fruit. But there have been some documented cases where fruititarians, people who only eat fruit, which the primary sugar is fructose in fruits, um, you can hear, you know, fruit fructose. It mm-hmm. makes sense. Uh, <laughs> just pointing that out for you guys. Um, they've also seen fatty livers in fruititarians, which is 
kind of bonkers. Nature's candy. It's my nature's candy. But, you know, I would much rather y'all eat some fruit as a dessert than eating a cake or a cupcake or whatever. And guys, I love sugar. Like I'm not, I'm not like pointing my finger. I'm pointing my finger at myself. I actually need to quit my sugar intake because I do notice when I eat sugary foods, whether they're quote unquote healthy or not, that I get a sugar rush and a crash. I'm super sensitive to it. So, you know, I'll have a little bit of sugar with my carbohydrates. Maybe it's a little bit healthier, has some fats and proteins incorporated in it as well. Um, and I get this burst of energy. I feel great. I feel on my game. And then, you know, an hour and a half, two hours later, I have brain fog. I feel depressed. I feel out of my element. I'm feeling fatigued. I just don't want to talk to anybody. I'm a little bit more angsty towards the people I'm communicating with and the people that I love. And even though I'm, you know, 24 years old, I'm not like a four-year-old rug rat running around drinking a Diet Coke or whatever. I still get sugar rushes. I get sugar highs and sugar crashes. And I think a lot of people do. They just, it's not that profound, super, super high, super, super low. So people don't really recognize it. For sure. I know a big realization for me, and I know it's for a lot of people on when they switch to a more ketogenic diet, is not having the three o'clock crash. That's a pretty common thing in the corporate world, in office settings. Everybody gets really depleted around three o'clock. Mm -hmm. You see people start nodding off at their desk. Everybody just kind of wants to leave. I know some offices will do coffee at three o'clock just to get everybody pepped up for the last couple hours of the, the day. And when you take sugar out of your lunches or car, uh, a lot of heavy carbs out of your lunch, you don't have that crash. Once your body gets adapted, gets fat adapted, you don't have that crash anymore. You don't have that brain fog in the afternoon. And that was a big light bulb that went on for me about just sugar and how it affects your brain. I know I'm dealing with a little brain fog this morning because we had a Taco Tuesday last night. I had some flour tortillas. I had a lot of chips. and. That's also not just the brain fog coming from sugar, but also hydrogenated oils that the chips were probably cooked in, that the tortillas were cooked in, that I'm sure the meats were cooked in. So a whole slew and storm of things that are keeping me from firing on all cylinders this morning. But let's kind of take the conversation back to specifically neuroplasticity, neurogenesis, I, do you want to get into the science a little bit more? Do you want to get into some of the habits? Where 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 would you like to take this sure. conversation, Cher? Um, let me go back to my notes real quick. Yeah, just hit um, my notes, do yeah, your thing. Just do my thing. Um, so maybe we should talk about just kind of briefly what negatively impacts brain health and overall neuroplasticity and then go into what actually benefits it just so that you guys are familiar with what is helping and what is hurting. So we've already gone off on sugar. Yeah, so we've already <laughs> we're already wagged our finger at sugar, but I just kind of want to preface all of this by saying everything is connected. Our body works as a unit and pretty much across the board, if something's good for you, it is good for you. If something is bad for you, it is bad for you. There's certain levels and spectrums of health versus non-health, for example, like, you know, is alcohol worse than cocaine? Probably not, but how much alcohol are you consuming definitely plays a huge role into how it's negatively impacting your health. Is fruit sugar as bad as high fructose corn syrup? No, but also if all you're eating is fruit, that's also not going to be great for your health. So there is a spectrum of wellness, absolutely. Balance and moderation. Balance and moderation. Um, but it's important to know that all core biological systems do act as a symphony, including the mind and the body. And I think something that we really fuck up in the American medical system is treating the mind and body as if they are two completely separate entities because things that are good for your physiological health are also good for your mental health. And conversely, if something is bad for your physical health, it's also going to be bad for your mental health. So 
A lot of this stuff might sound, you know, if you've been listening to all of our podcast episodes, might sound a little bit redundant, but that's a good thing because you guys are starting to pick up on, okay, this is a generally good thing for me to do versus this is a generally not so good thing for me to do. Um, so that aside, let's get into different the things. things. Excuse me? Let's, let's, or we're getting into the bad things right now. Not we're getting into things. the bad All things. Right, the yeah, bad yeah, 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 yeah. So pretty much two of the major factors that affect brain health and overall neuroplasticity are sugar and stress. So we've already gone off about sugar, but 95% of all illnesses, whether they're physiological or mental illnesses, are caused or worsened by stress. Makes sense. It makes sense. But, you know, I still think a lot of people are blaming their genes for their bad health, which it's not to say that your genes don't play a role into it, but we're realizing in this day and age, epigenetics plays such a larger role in your overall health and well-being, both physically and mentally. What do you mean by epigenetics? Epigenetics is your body's... Uh, ability to turn on and off genes. Definitely. So things like your environment, your lifestyle, basically all of it's like your inputs affect your outputs. So anything you're inputting into your body, like your food, is actual information to your system. It's sending signals throughout your body of, hey, it's time to turn this on, it's time to turn this off. So that's basically how our bodies work in a nutshell. If we're putting all of these negative inputs, whether it's negative thoughts or sugar or stress or X, Y, or Z into our system, it's going to turn on the genes that um, turn off neuroplasticity or turn on insulin resistance or, you know, turn on overproduction of cells which leads to cancers and tumors in the body it's all it's all the same stuff at the end of the day now epigenetics would be the whole metaphor of your genes are kind of the gun and then your habits or epigenetics would be like the trigger exactly absolutely and he actually dr hyman um who did this whole unit he actually says that i think that's who i got it from probably that, that that metaphor and that that's that's a big thing i'm passionate about is you hear so many people i just have bad genes or i'm worried because i'm my parents had this or we are predisposed to this disease or this illness for instance my family for years has told me that we had heart issues running in our family and now that i actually look back on our family tree and Maybe there is some genetic heart disease, but also it may be the fact that I have a long line of alcoholics and sugar addicts in my family. Mm-hmm. No poor diet, poor lifestyle choices. And then a heart attack came. After you, all of that. You can't say I'm predetermined to get a heart attack when a distant relative had a heart attack, but he was also a drug addict. Yeah, exactly. No, absolutely. And it's and it's entirely up to you. I think the reason why we've kind of collapsed the whole genetic predisposition conversation as far as, you know, predisposing us to disease is that who is raising us, who is teaching us the health patterns that we have throughout our life. It's our parents, it's our grandparents, it's our other family members. We adopt a lot of our health patterns, whether it's our eating patterns, our lifestyle, recreational patterns, uh, whether we're active or sedentary, all of these things we initially learn from our parents. And so if our parents are sedentary and eating high sugar diets and not intentional about what foods they're putting into their system, maybe they have a couple drinks every night, maybe they actually have a problem with certain substances, that is what gets thrown on us as a child. And so, yeah, that genetic component definitely does play a role, but I think it's more so our conditioning that plays more of a role into our health. And it's our responsibility to 
undergo deconditioning and teach ourselves, okay, how do I really want to live my life? That breaking away from the family unit sounds like really traumatic and very, you know, dramatic as far as like, I'm breaking away from the family. Breaking free. Yeah. And, you know, for some people who have had really negative experiences in their family life, that might actually be the best case scenario is to actually distance yourself from your family. But when I mean breaking free from the family unit, I mean saying, I love you but I am stepping into my highest self, my authenticity, and I am pursuing something better than what you gave me. And that's no shade to you guys, but I realize what I need to do to become this better version of myself. So I'm going to let go of my conditioning and basically teach myself how to be the best person possible. That's what I mean by breaking free. I love that. And you can take that not as just physical or literal parents, but parents in the sense of our cultural teachings. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What we believe and the, the way we've been taught the food pyramid and the way disease works. We've kind of been led down a path that would make you think, my mom had Alzheimer's, I'm going to get Alzheimer's. My grandma, my grandma had cancer, I'm going to get cancer. Yes, you may more be be more predisposed to those things with your genetics, but you are in control. We have control of our lives. That's what I'm all about is I think even me as a person, I'm more predisposed to having depressive episodes, getting really bogged down with my thoughts. And that's a big reason why I'm an advocate for health is I have to work hard to make sure I don't fall into that that predetermined path. I have to really make sure I stay above it and do certain things in my life. And usually when I get to that point where I get in a depressed state, I can kind of go through a checklist and be like, okay, I'm not doing this. I've been eating this way. I've been living in this way. My sleep's off. I can kind of go through the checklist and figure it out. And that's with any disease we talk about. And, and a big thing is, is stress. And I think when we think of stress, we just think, oh, our boss yelling at us, deadlines, But we put our bodies through a lot of physical stress through our diets, like we talk about sedentary lifestyle, and then media too puts us in a ton of stress. We put stress on our eyes because we're constantly focusing on screens and we're not taking a step back and and switching into that panoramic view. There's a lot of stress that we're not really cognizant of that may be to our detriment in the end. We live in such a baseline of stress that we don't even realize that we're stressed out. And so I will just kind of touch on that, how it works in the body physiologically. So the body governs its stress responses through the autonomic nervous system. So there's a couple different branches of the nervous system. You have your central nervous system, which consists of your brain and your spinal column, your peripheral nervous system, which is your uh, nerves that kind of branch out from the spinal cord and connect to either different muscular systems or organ systems that innervate them, turn them kind of on and off or modulate, you know, the rate in which they are in, in, in their activity. Um, and then we also have the autonomic nervous system, which is something that it's, it's, it's like we can control it and we can't control it at the same time. It's kind of a funny conversation. So our autonomic nervous system has two different branches to it. We have the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. So everyone's heard of fight or flight response. That is the sympathetic nervous system. So it's really great that we have this system so that when we are in actual periods of stress, when we are in danger, we are activated, we are energized, our adrenals will release cortisol, adrenaline, and norepinephrine, which turns on our whole system. And we are able to activate ourselves to a much higher degree than we think that we are, you know, physically capable of. So we kind of turn into like superhumans for a short period of time and are actually able to do what we need to do to get out of this stressful or dangerous situation. And then we're able, in theory, to turn it off. But the issue is that we, 
exist in the sympathetic state. And so we are living in a stressful state. We're not turning off the sympathetic system and going into parasympathetic, which is all rest and digest. So if you think about it, if you're living a baseline stressful life, you're going to have trouble with your sleep. You're going to have trouble with your digestion. You might have some reproductive issues, whether it's low sex drive, erectile dysfunction, um, having some issues with your hormones like PMS if you're a woman, or even having irregular periods, different things like that. Um, You might have a baseline really fast heartbeat, not able to quiet your mind. All of these things are indicative of being turned on all the time. And if you think about it, you know, I think a lot of people say you can't be on all the time. I have to tell myself that being someone who is stepping up into my career through social media, through podcasting, through just being a presence in my local community, I often feel this pressure to be on all the time and to be engaged, to interact, to reply to X, Y, or Z. But you can't be on all the time. That leaves you in a state of stress and then you're not able to repair and recover and come back into your body, which causes a lot of physiological and mental havoc on your system. And just going back to a conversation we had before, we have to be mindful about that rest. It's, you know, a lot of us think rest is sitting on the couch and watching Netflix, but a lot of shows that we watch keep you in that baseline stress. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so just so you guys have a little bit of uh, context, chronic stress increases inflammation in the body. It also increases anxiety and depression. Chronic stress damages the hippocampus, which is responsible for your mood and your memory. So you're at an increased risk of dementia and mood disorders. It also reduces your serotonin levels, so you're at a higher risk of depression. And then it also interferes with your thyroid function. So that can also decrease your metabolism, put you at a higher risk of weight gain, put you at a higher risk of insulin resistance, which puts you at a higher risk of diabetes, which puts you at a higher risk of dementia. So I know that it's a was... a vicious cycle. It is a vicious cycle, absolutely. But when we say 95% of illness is caused by or worsened by stress, we're not fucking joking. Like stress is the absolute you know, it is the bad guy. If there is a bad guy in the story of our life, it would be stress. And now it's not to say that some stress is a good thing. You do have to have a little bit of something that's activating you, that's pushing you, that's motivating you to actually get your stuff done. If we didn't have any stress in our systems, we would all just be like hanging out on the beach, drinking out of coconuts and just vibing, which sounds really cool in theory, but you're not really going to like... you know, self-actualize sitting on a beach drinking out of coconuts. So that's my two cents. Yeah, uh, stress is a, it's a killer. I, I worry about stress in my life. I've always been the kind of person that holds stress. Even when I don't have reasons to be stressed, I'll sit for a little while and then I'm like, I got to find something to be stressed about. I'm the same way. And I'm a big fan of controlling your stress. That's why I... I like doing, I guess it's called uh, temperature therapy or just manipulating my environment to either doing a cold shower or a sauna, kind of putting your body through a physical stress and getting, getting your body used to responding to those things. Because if you put your body through physical stress, it mimics certain ways that your body reacts in a physical way to even mental stress. So I'm, and I think it has something to do with neuroplasticity, neurogenesis. If you're, if you're choosing your stress, especially exercise and getting over those humps, it helps fortify those synapses. I guess the good synapses, right? Mm-hmm. Am, I, am I on a good track yep. right now? Yep. I'm going to let you roll with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, just kind of rolling with it. Um, but I always say you got to choose your stress. And sometimes if you choose the stress of working out, it will help you with the stress of your job. If you choose the stress of taking a cold shower, it will help you with the stress of your family. There's, you got to pick and choose. But a big thing, like we were saying before, 
is you got to take a break. You got to take a rest. Mm-hmm. You have to sit back. And, and something that I've become more aware of lately, and I spoke about it earlier, is having, you have two planes of vision, and I don't know the actual term for each one, but one is that focused, right in front of you, looking at the screen, being able to focus in on certain pinpoint locations. And then you have the panorama view, which is looking out onto a horizon, looking into the sky. And we need to be mindful of that and, and try to find more opportunities in our day of getting in that panoramic view. And that could ease a lot of stress, just visual stress, which puts a lot of stress on your energy systems and your mind in general. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think you even talked about, you know, from a very real world example, you know, we're on screens all the time. We're looking at a such a microcosm of our universe at all times, whether it's our phone, a computer, X, Y, or Z, or even a TV. Um, we're just always looking at screens. We're looking at this little tiny expression of life. And not only is it emitting blue light, which is hurting our eyes and impacting our mental health, different things like that, but actually psychologically and even from like a more philosophical point of view, it's also impacting our mental health. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, so we're getting into the bads, what's hurting neuroplasticity, neurogenesis. So stress is a big one. And anything that really stresses your body, either physically, mentally, emotionally, is going to negatively impact your brain, correct? Yes, exactly. And so kind of going along with stress, inflammation also negatively impacts the brain. So this is kind of a little bit more of the physiological side of mental health. So your body is supposed to just kind of like the autonomic nervous system, the parasympathetic system. If you have a foreign invader, a pathogen, an infection, um, anything that is causing let that shouldn't be in your body, essentially, uh, your immune system is really smart and turns on this alarm system, which is inflammation. And so inflammation is not inherently a bad thing. We need inflammation in order to fight infections. It's just to what degree do we exist in an inflammatory state and how long do we exist in an inflammatory state? That's when it becomes an issue. It's the exact same conversation as stress. So chronic inflammation, is when we are living in this chronically stressed out state in our physiological, our physical environment. And so our body begins to attack itself. And so you'll see a lot of people with autoimmune disorders, your body is actually attacking itself because there is a chronic inflammation issue that existed long before you ever got diagnosed with some sort of autoimmune disease. And um, manifestations of brain inflammation may show up as depression, dementia, autism, ADD, Alzheimer's, brain fog, and forgetfulness. So we have a little bit more of the, the heavy hitters in the beginning, but then even in our day-to-day life, most people will experience brain fog, forgetfulness, distractedness, not full presence, or even, you know, minor depression, a little bit of anxiety here and there. Those are still symptoms of inflammation in the brain. And so inflammation in the brain and the body can be caused by diet, like sugar, refined flowers, trans fats, and refined oils. So even talking about your Taco Tuesday night last night, those hydrogenated oils probably caused brain inflammation, which is why you're experiencing a little bit of brain fog. Definitely. I mean, we get sugar gets a bad rap. Gluten's been on people's radar for a while. And I think now we're starting to shift where people are going to start really paying attention to their hydrogenated oils. I feel like there will eventually be a little sticker or people will advertise, you know, no, no certain oils. They'll come up with some catchy name for it, but I'm hoping that's where we're going in the health space. I would love that. I would love that because I mean, I will still eat out, but every time I eat out, I'm like, I'm going to feel like shit tomorrow because they probably used hydrogenated oils in this. Like there's really no two ways about it because it is by far the cheapest way to produce, um, you know, fried foods and not even fried foods, even things like pizza and whatever has hydrogenated oils in it. Like 
uh, all of the oils and the glutens and things, like they're all infused with this hydrogenated oil, which just totally wrecks your brain, which is unfortunate. Puts your body through a lot of stress. It, yeah. it really is inflammation. Everything kind of comes down to inflammation. Yes. With yeah. This. And so stress and inflammation are kind of more or less synonymous. I would say stress is a little bit more of the physical representation and inflammation is more of the physiological representation, but you can have physical stress in the body and you can also have inflammation in the brain. So they kind of go hand in hand yeah. with each other. Um, but other things that can cause brain inflammation are food allergies and sensitivities. So just like you talked about, things like gluten and dairy um, definitely play a big role in our mental health. And even if you're somebody who's like, oh, I can drink a gallon of milk and not feel all that shitty. First of all, you're lying to yourself. <laughs> um, <laughs> but... If you take these things out of your diet, and again, I'm speaking to myself right now, if you take these things out of your diet for even just a week or two, you're going to feel so much better physically and mentally. So I'm trying to get to the point where I can actually cut gluten and dairy out of my diet. And now that my personal life, social life is starting to kind of reach a little bit of a lull. I don't know. Summer is always a little slow here in Florida. And I think that's a blessing in a lot of ways. I'm it's really too hot outside. It's too, exactly. It's too hot outside. Nobody wants to do anything. Um, and just kind of an aside, I think a lot of people, at least where we live are, we're all reconsidering like our finances. Like I don't want to go out to eat all the time. I don't even want to like go out on vacation all the time. I just kind of want to like hang out at home and work on my garden and cook from home and shit like that. It's the goal. That's that's the goal. So we're talking about the negative side, things that stop neurogenesis. Yes. And that's <laughs> anything that really causes you stress and it's hard to list what those specific things are. Oh, I got them listed right here. Oh, well, let's... <laughs> let's, let's <laughs> I got let's, a list, baby. Let's hear your, sh your list, Cher. <laughs> so I'll just go through it real quick. Um, so diet, food allergies, gut imbalances, um, heavy metal poisoning and toxins cause immune dysfunction and brain damage, particularly mercury and pesticides, uh, low-grade hidden chronic infections um, like you know, herpes virus, Epstein-Barr virus, um, Lyme disease, even strep bacteria can cause mental disorders. Like um, it's been associated with obsessive compulsive disorder, which is really mm. fascinating. Um, yeah, you probably thought of some people right there. Um, and then stress, obviously, in increases brain inflammation, sedentary lifestyle, inadequate sleep, like the glymphatic system is basically the brain's immune system and it requires an appropriate amount of sleep and high quality sleep in order to clear out all of the metabolites that get produced by your brain throughout the day. Um, and if it can't do that, then that's also causing inflammation, brain fog, forgetfulness can lead to chronic mental disease. Um, and then also nutritional deficiencies is also kind of a no-brainer with diet. But if you're not getting this in your diet or not absorbing these nutrients to the degree that you need them, definitely consider supplementing with vitamin C, the B vitamins, vitamin D, zinc, and omega-3 fats. So these are all things that are really easy to find as supplements, but also eating a uh, minimally processed whole foods diet organic when you can you're going to get a lot of these nutrients naturally definitely that's a big one and that's why i i can't stand it when people like in the bodybuilding community do the if it fits your macros and it's just Ugh. I hate that conversation. Oh, I still got I still got 800 calories to go, so I'm going to eat four Pop-Tarts. That's not calories are not all created the same and it gets into micronutrients. Mm -hmm. So if you're not aware of those things and 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 I'll just put it an aside an aside to this and I'm not trying to, you know, propaganda for eating, you know, you want to eat what you're going to eat, but a few of those things that share listed, it's really hard to find those in plants sources. Mm -hmm. So you got to kind of try to get some good either grass-fed meats or wild-caught fish. 
or some some free range eggs. I'm not, you know, if you're not in line with that, I understand, but it's just something to consider. Yeah, and it's 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 a challenging conversation because in theory, I love the plant based model, but um, I like the plant based model as far as like eighty percent of my yeah. food is plants. But the other 20% is going to be animal products because, like you said, it's really hard to get a lot of these micronutrients and an appropriate amount of protein, like actually bioavailable micronutrients and protein in your body if you're not consuming some sort of animal product. Yeah. And that's the deeper level of the conversation is the bioavailability. Just because yeah. a food has that mm-hmm. micronutrient in it doesn't mean that you're going to actually absorb, not maybe, I think you will absorb some of it, but not all of it. Even mm-hmm. with protein shakes or whatever, you know, just because it's even a steak, even if, just because a steak has 60 grams of protein doesn't mean you're going to absorb all 60 grams of protein. Exactly. Exactly. And so it's great, great point. And something that I think we've talked about before on the podcast, but we can always discuss this further. So yeah. that's kind of the basics of the things that impact neurogenesis negatively. Now we can talk about what. What what's positive? And we've we've talked about I think just through talking about the the negatives we've talked about some of the positives. Yeah, absolutely. And I know a big one, and a lot of the positives and and enhancing neurogenesis have to do with blood flow. Correct. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. I'll let and you go so, ahead. um, definitely exercise is one of the absolute best things that you can do for neuroplasticity and neurogenesis in the body. So concepts of exercise correlate almost identically to neuroplasticity and neurogenesis as far as the whole idea of move it or lose it. Yeah. And so if you're not moving your body, if you're not moving your brain, you're going to lose synaptic connections or, you know, physiologically muscle connections. So you're getting physically weaker and mentally weaker. Um, So you do need to challenge yourself in a loving way. If you're over challenging yourself, that creates too much stress and inflammation on the mind and the body, which actually depletes your body's ability to rest and recover and create new synaptic connections. So it's the same conversation as exercise as it is with brain health. You know what I'm saying? But exercise actually does stimulate neuroplasticity because it helps the brain release brain-derived neurotropic factor or BDNF. And BDNF is something that gets you know, you are just flooded with BDNF when you were a baby. And that is why your brain grows so exponentially from the time that you are born to the time that you're seven years old. Um, And it continues to do so at a very, very high rate, but it's just, God, so exponential in your first couple years of living. Um, It's the same thing that gets released when you are exercising. And so, This catalyzes the growth of new synaptic connections and bolsters the strength of signals transmitted from neuron to neuron. So neuroplasticity, it helps grow new synaptic connections and bolsters the strength of these synaptic connections. Um, And exercise also promotes mental and behavioral flexibility. And studies show that walking an hour a day, five times a week, increases brain matter in the hippocampus, which we've talked about the hippocampus earlier in this conversation as far as mood disorders and dementia. But the hippocampus is where learning and memory, as well as mood, take place. So exercise, do it. And you made a good point. It's just, you just spoke about walking. All you got to do is walk. And I know for me, and a little bit of the research I, I, I've done around this topic, the common prescription for exercise to increase neuroplasticity or neurogenesis would be 30 to 40 minutes of aerobic exercise three to four days a week. And mm-hmm. walking is a form of aerobic exercise. Now, we have to be mindful of that. I casually walking at a super slow pace is not necessarily, especially if your body's adapted to it and you're a person that works out more, is not going to give you the benefits that a brisk walk would. You really should walk at a pace, and somebody put it 
that you should be walking almost as if somebody is following you and you're trying to not... I know, it's a, I know it's, a, it's a little scary concept, but you should be walking at a pace to where right before you would need to start jogging. Oh, okay. Yeah. I would also just put it as put a little pep in your step. Put a little pep in your step. Definitely. But, but I actually, as much as I somewhat dislike the analogy, it does create a very clear image in my brain as far as how fast I should be walking. So yeah. it does help. It does help. No, it does help. It's a little scary. But. It's a little scary, but it helps. Um, and then decreased BDNF, so the same brain-derived neurotropic factor, is associated with Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, multiple sclerosis, Huntington's disease, and higher levels of BDNF, which it would be associated with aerobic exercise and other positive stimulating activities, are associated with improved cognition, mental health, and memory. So it's two sides of the same coin. It makes a lot of sense when you put them side by side. Definitely. Oh, I was going to say something. If, <laughs> if, if you're at a lull, I have something I'd like to talk yeah, about or bring it. to the table. You, we talk, you, you were saying before about children and they have a high amount of BDNF. And we all know that children learn things at a much faster rate. How much does this have to do with play? Is there anything in your research that you looked into play? Because I know that is a big part of why children learn so much is a lot of their learning is playful. You just hit the nail on the coffin. And that, that, that just blew my mind, actually, because I didn't even think about it like that. But yes, ac absolutely. Engaging is in play, in playful activities, social interactions, trying new things all increase your BDNF. And what do kids do? They play. They make friends. They try new things because everything is new to them. And so if you're in these enriching and stimulating environments, doing new things, having fun, connecting with people, those are all things that increase your BDNF, which is interesting because now I'm thinking how much of the BDNF is actually naturally part of a child's experience. Like, would a child have the same amount of BDNF if they were in a non-enriching environment, if they weren't allowed to play, if they weren't allowed to be part of social environments? My guess would be no. You know, I think it has, it, I think it's a nature and nurture conversation, but it's just, now I'm in, now I'm thinking about it. Yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to open up a can of worms, but that's one thing that I believe when people talk about discrepancies and your socioeconomic status in the world, when you're growing up in poverty, you're growing up in a much more stressful environment. You're not privy to playing instruments or going to a soccer, being in a soccer league and doing those things at a young age. And it's not just about education systems within the inner city it's also about the environment that these children are growing up in and i think it hinders a lot of that brain development and it hinders learning at a at a faster clip of someone as a child who's not really worried about their safety and they are parents are signing them up in music class and they're going to ride horses and they're doing all these things and that's something that we don't really talk about in the development of children is the differences economics makes in just the environment that a child grows up in. And I think BDNF has a lot to do with that. Yeah, so play sounds like it's just as important as actually getting an education. I think it is harder to, to learn and fully develop as a child if you're not introduced to play. Mm -hmm. If and I, I mean, I think even as an adult, something that I always felt was a positive attribute that I have is I try to find areas to play. I'm a very playful person. Even with my, my friends get kind of, I like to wrestle with my friends <laughs> and I like to dance and I like to even just play pretend a little bit. Mm -hmm. Maya, it drives my nuts because <laughs> once in a while I'll just be hanging out and I'll be like, I, I just have a character in my head and I'm going to go with it. And I start talking in an accent and like just kind of just going off and playing and it's something that I need to actually be a little bit more mindful of. I don't have it as much in my life mm -hmm. as I used to. I know martial arts for me is a form of play. Mm -hmm. I like 
that's why I like going to sparring and not just the classes is sparring can be a very playful thing when you're in shape. Lately, I've just been getting the shit kicked out of me because <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting there just trying to survive. Yeah. But play is important and, and we should be finding ways to play. I love dance. I know people talk about dance all the time and you see those... You see all the hippie people doing their weird dances, and I guess it's called ecstatic dance. I think that's a great form of play. I'm sure that that just lights up the BDNF. Oh, what, what are some ways that you like to play, Cher? See, this is... I, I need to incorporate more play into my life. Like, I have activities that I find pleasure in, but it's not a whole lot of just like pure unadulterated play unless I'm with other people. Like I have certain friends that when we're together, we're just goofballs and we're playing around with each other. So I experience a lot more play socially. Mm -hmm. But when I was a kid, my imagination was just through the roof. Just like you said, I was always had making up new games and imaginary friends. And, you know, I could make a game out of anything. And so it was always a little bit more mentally stimulating. Like my play was never just like pure physical, like it sounds like yours is. It was always a little bit more up in my head or would challenge me to look at things a different way or see things a different way. But I. I need to I need to have more play in my life. I definitely do. And so um things that I've been wanting to start doing mm, words are so challenging. Those today. words. Those damn words. Um but my boyfriend does a lot of music stuff and I often think to myself, oh, that would be nice. But then I don't do anything about it. So wanting to actually challenge myself to learn a new instrument. I've been considering picking up piano. I kind of know how to play guitar. Not the best, but um, currently I have these uh, <laughs> acrylic nails on right now, so I think it'd be really hard for it's me a little to difficult to play, uh, play guitar at the moment. I think piano I could actually do with these nails, though. So, um, And I'm probably not going to keep these forever, but um, as of the present moment, can't really be strumming on a guitar with these bad boys on um and let me think gosh this is kind of depressing <laughs> well that's but that's the world we live in as yeah. adults you're not allowed I mean, to play true. you you get kind of you get brought up it's like once you're 18 time to be an adult and yeah. not you know that's kids sh people be like oh that's just childish mm -hmm. don't do that that's what kids do or Whatever, dude. Go play pretend. Go run yeah. around the park. Go LARP. <laughs> <laughs> dude, there was a LARPing club at um, at FSU, which was, for anyone who doesn't know what LARPing is, it's live action role play. So if you see, saw kids coming out with, I don't know, they almost look like they were, what's the word for it? Like, uh, not sparring each other. Fencing. Uh, fencing. Yeah, yeah they yeah, have yeah. like foam swords. And axes and it was lit. And I um lived on Landis Green, which overlooks well, I lived in Landis, which overlooked Landis Green. So I got to see all of the crazies at all hours of the day. And I got to watch a couple of LARPing sessions. And honestly, it brought so much joy to me. It was so much fun to watch. I think we should go LARPing. <laughs> yeah. I think that's how I'm we down. should should I'm find down. the play. Did y'all have humans versus zombies at FSU? I don't know. It doesn't ring a bell for me. Okay, at UF, they had, it was like once a sem semester, they would have humans versus zombies, and you would sign up, and you would either wear a bandana on your arm, if you were, I think, it, I forget it, I think, it, either way, you either wore your bandana on your arm or your head, and it signified whether you were a human or a zombie. If you got tagged by a zombie, you obviously became a zombie, but if you shot them with a Nerf gun, Oh, they couldn't tag you for 15 minutes or oh, that's, that's awesome. how it would be. And I played my freshman year and it was the most fun. And I was super bummed because my friends never wanted to play with me again. Aww. It's like, but it, it's, I mean, it, it was, I don't know. I find that stuff fun. So maybe we should, we should look into some LARPing or some, wanna, maybe get some Nerf guns. Or, yeah. I was just thinking the Nerf gun conversation made me think I've never gone paintballing before. 
okay, I love paintballing. Mm-hmm. I low-key was a little too into it. Uh-oh. In middle school, high school, my parents were pissed because in ninth grade, the summer after ninth grade, I worked an entire summer and I blew all my money on a paintball gun. <laughs> I spent $2,000 on a setup. And oh my God. me and my boys were into it and low-key thinking about getting back into it. I'm just kind of waiting. I have the money set aside. I'm waiting for my friends because I know how my friends work and I'll go buy a whole setup and then none of them will will do will follow through and then I'm stuck with it. I but was just thinking about going to a paintball range. And we just, should go. I'm really down to do that. I've never done anything like that. Like I've played like Nerf games or like, you know, the shooting yeah. games, but... Um, I need to organize it with the putties because yeah. it's more fun to go with a, especially if you don't with have a your big own group e- of people. Because if you don't have your own equipment, me and you would go and we'd get rental rental guns or markers. They're not supposed to be called guns. Mm-hmm. Rental markers, and we would just get wrecked by people that have basically machine guns. True, <laughs> and we're just like pop, pop, pop. <laughs> we should definitely do that. But let's let's bring it back. We got to talk about we're talking about play. So exercise and play are two big things that Mm -hmm. increase neuroplasticity. Other things are eating a healthy diet, getting your micronutrients in check, also finding rest. What are some other things that are popping in your mind as ways that we can help our Um, neuroplasticity, neurogenesis? This kind of goes along with play, but like positive social interactions. Yeah. So connecting with people that you love or actually making new friends is a great way to increase your neuroplasticity. Um, So I think that's something that unfortunately has been taken away from a lot of people in the last year and a half, but hopefully we're kind of turning around from that. So go out and make a new friend it will be good for your brain health. Um, And that's something that I've always been really grateful for going to the kava bars and different things like that because you always meet really, really interesting, really fun people there. And that's definitely doing some good stuff for for my brain. Love that. Love that. Is there anything you really want to touch on before we close stuff out? Um. I think I think I close out the same way a lot of the time, but just be kind to yourself and ask yourself, what do I love to do and do more of that? And maybe even go into a little bit of a meditation. One, meditation is really good for your brain too. Um, but meditate on your childhood and what brought you joy when you were a child because those same activities will probably bring you a lot of joy today. And so... Even just thinking about that, for me, I was always an artist. So I, I I never really had like the the rough and tough play activities because that wasn't really my temperament. But I loved being outside in nature. Like I gardened with my mom a lot. I was drawing a lot. So I'm actually coming back into those things. So gardening is something now that I have an actual backyard is coming back into my life. And while it's not like the most pure, unadulterated fun activity ever, it does bring me a lot of joy. And so I think that's another way to put a spin on it is, you know, play and joy. So if you're somebody who I I do encourage everybody to go out and play and just be a kid, like embrace your inner child and climb a tree, go climb a tree, but be careful about climb a tree. Don't Take that as like, go climb a tree and fall out and then get mad at us. But yeah, <laughs> be yeah, careful yeah. climbing the tree. We cannot be held liable for you falling out of a tree. Just yeah. putting that out there. Yeah. Um, so definitely find play and get a little bit of your inner inner kid on. But if things that bring you joy are a little bit more like novel activities, like drawing and writing and being creative, imaginative, trying a new instrument or um, learning a new skill. Um, Those are all really great things that you can do for your brain. And, you know, just kind of like we said throughout the podcast, things that are not super great for your body are also not super great for your brain. And the reverse is true too. Things that are good for your body are good for your brain. So, I hope this conversation was enlightening and kind of helped show you guys, you know, how to put two and two together. Um, I know you guys are very mindful of how to transform yourself physically and mentally, emotionally and spiritually. And I hope this conversation helps you in this next step of your journey.
Love it. Thank you, Cher. Thank you, Robbie. Sharing your knowledge with everyone. And now let's close this out. The the beat should be kicking in right now. And yeah, we are the BAM podcast, Balance and Moderation. We are focused on bringing digestible content to people that can be implemented in a real life. If you have any questions for Cher, she is at The Soul and Science on Instagram. I am at Wellness Rob. Our podcast is at The BAM Podcast. Please reach out, ask us questions. We love that. It brings us joy in our lives to help others. And I would love to hear what other people like to do is play. Send us a DM and just be like, I like to do this. I like to do that. Maybe we can pose a question on the story and ask people what they like to do for play because I think that we, we ended on that and that is an interesting concept to me and it's something that we all should find more of in our life. So thank you for joining us. Please like, rate, review, and share. Uh, we've kind of gotten a little stagnant with reviews. Uh, I just would appreciate if you haven't done that yet, and this is more than you've been listening to these episodes, please just leave us a review on Apple Apple Podcasts. It, it helps us out a ton, and we really appreciate it, and we love you. Thank you so much for tuning in and sharing this little over an hour with us. We love you. Big love is the mood. Have a great day. Peace out. Hey everyone, Rob here. Really appreciate you listening to our episode. Just real quick, this podcast is for information and inspiration purposes only. Any personal opinions or views do not replace medical advice. Balance and Moderation recommend all listeners embarking on their wellness journey to do so under appropriate supervision by a healthcare provider. Thanks.